Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey we all know and love. (laughs) It's great to be here, and I appreciate you spending some time with me. I value the listeners, and I want to show you this evening how I value the listeners. I'm actually not kidding. I really do value the feedback, the questions, the encouragement, uh, the suggestions, the news pointers, all that that I get from listeners week to week. And as I said last week, I wanted to acknowledge that and have the listeners help define the program this evening. So this evening we're going to be covering listener questions that I asked for last week and I received several um, since then and I'm going to go through those in a minute. But I want to tell a little story first because uh, that was last week. So last Monday I was sitting in this chair and I said, please send me your questions for next week's show or, or I said an upcoming show. And then two days later, I'm listening to Erwin Chusid's show, which is uh, Wednesdays from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on WFMU on the Mothership. And I was listening to Erwin, and he said something like, and now it's time for Gus Bodenheim to answer listener questions that we asked for last week. <laughs> Oops. So I, I posted on Irwin's comment board, Dear Irwin and Gus Bodenheim, uh, coincidentally, I am also running a listener questions episode, and I announced it earlier this week without knowing that Gus was already on this idea. So here is my requisite hat tip to Irwin Chusett and Gus Bodenheim for coming up with the idea before I did, and my unknowingly following right in their footsteps. Uh, so I guess, you know, great minds and all of that, but really it's a little embarrassing because I almost always listen to Irwin's show. I don't know how I missed that. But anyway, if you're a fan of, of Irwin as I am, you're now going to get a double dose of listener questions because here we are in Tectonic with listener questions. Um, okay, so why don't, why don't we start with one that's um, fun and... Uh, does not have a lot to do with recent tech news. How about that? And I, I appreciated all the questions I got. This one, oh, there, there's one other thing I want to say, by the way. If you have a burning question that you did not get to send in and you'd still like to send it in, you can post it on the comment board this evening, and I'm not sure if I'm going to have a chance to look over the questions on the comment board, but I, but I might. Um, I have some music looping in the background that I might bring up at some point for, you know, 20 seconds just so I can survey the comment board if we, if we uh, have an opportunity to go to a couple, one or two extra questions. So if you want to post uh, a question on the comment board, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. And um, if we have time, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get to one or two additional ones. But let's go with the questions that I got from listeners 
this past week. Uh, let's start off with listener Colin in Osaka, Japan. Uh, Colin writes, uh, Mark, you mentioned recently that you took a trip to Japan, which is true. I Back in, what was it, uh, March or April, I took a trip to Japan with my family. Colin says, uh, you said something, you said on Tectonic, something to the effect that the experience would be enough to fill an entire episode. I'm originally from New Jersey, Colin says, but as a longtime resident of Japan, I'm curious as to how tech-wise the country strikes a visitor. Interested to hear your impressions. Well, I, 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 I want to say, great question, and I want to say by way of preface, I was, I was, I was there for a, a personal family vacation, so I didn't really have my tech hat on exactly. I wasn't there on a study tour, and I didn't uh, make a point of seeing, you know, seeking out a lot of technology. But I can say what the visitor experience. I think I was there for nine or ten days, and I can talk about what the my own visitor or tourist experience was. Uh, walking around and and seeing the sites, the sort of the typical sites that that tourists see in Japan, and the the main thing that I came back tech wise uh, thinking about from Japan was the trains, because there are trains everywhere in Japan that will take you everywhere in Japan. Now, a lot of people know about the bullet trains, the the so called Shinkansen trains in Japan. There are different kinds of bullet trains in Japan. And uh, we got what's called a, a Japan Rail Pass, which gave us access to most uh, most kinds of bullet trains, except the fastest. And so we were on several different varieties of trains and bullet trains throughout Japan. We also took the subway in, uh, in Tokyo. And I think we were on a kind of a commuter train that's somewhere between a bullet train and a and a subway at some point as well. Let me just say that every single train we took <laughs> was exactly on time, and it worked perfectly. And the facilities, both on the train and on the platform, were spotless. And the people who were uh, coming by with food carts and uh, you know checking tickets and everyone we dealt with from the train, various train authorities, they were completely polite and efficient. And I mean, it's just like when you compare it to our typical experience of public transportation here in the U.S., and if you want to specifically talk about Amtrak, and I don't mean to dump on Amtrak, but, you know, if you make the comparison, it's Japan is superior in just about every respect. And that that sense of things running on time, things being orderly, and people really knowing what their jobs were and doing them well, that was a theme that carried over beyond the trains, um, just walking around in in the cities that, that we went to. It was very rare, for example, to see a single piece of trash anywhere. I think by the end of the trip, we had seen two or three. And it was like always a big deal, like, oh, wow, there's one piece of trash. Uh, but on, I think on our first evening there, we were walking across Ginza, which is kind of a fancy neighborhood in Tokyo. And kind of like our, um, I guess a little bit like Manhattan's Fifth Avenue. Anyway, kind of a fancy place. 
And there was some, on one of the blocks that we were walking down, there was some road construction going on. They had to, like happens in any city, they had to tear up the street in order to get to some kind of, I don't know, wiring or pipe below the street to, to do a fix. And I wish I had taken a photo of this, because uh, I, but I, but I have the image very clearly in my mind that that road construction uh, area, they had it blocked off with cones and some tape, and there were guys watching for traffic, and there were guys doing the work. That whole area was so clean that, I mean, you could almost uh, eat a meal off of the pavement that that they had just paved. I mean, it was, there was no dust or dirt. There weren't jackhammers going on everywhere. And I don't know, it was just, it was an interesting contrast again to the kinds of uh, road construction we see at, let's say in New York City, which is, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of experience. Again, not to, not to dump on everything uh, American in our own processes, but, but the comparison was, was pretty stark. What else can I say? Oh, just the precision in packaging design. This isn't exactly a tech, well, it is sort of a technology. It's just not a digital technology, but I'll give an example. I mean, just everything that you buy or you picked up in a store or maybe someone someone gives to you in, in some kind of context, the unboxing experience is just, everything is designed just so, I mean, everything fits perfectly together. It's often a cute design and it's clever in some way that it, it is both aesthetically pleasing, but also very um, e- efficient and effective. And one example, maybe this is kind of a dumb example, but we ended up going to 7-Eleven a lot um, in Japan because 7-Eleven in Japan is, uh, tends to be much nicer than the 7-Elevens here in the States. You can get a lot of actually really good food. I'm mean, pre- pretty good, pretty, pretty good food at 7-Eleven in Japan. They have these uh, refrigerators in the back of the store where there's refrigerated foods. And, and like I said, pretty good Japanese food. And there's this food called onigiri, which is these rice balls or rice. They're kind of like balls. They're kind of triangular, I guess, but they have some sort of um, fish or chicken in the middle of them. And they're, they're, um, wrapped up in seaweed and the way those are the way the packaging is constructed is so clever it's all plastic and it and once you once you get the trick it's really easy the way you pull the tabs off of the plastic of these rice balls allows you to eat the entire onigiri without getting your hands sticky from the rice it like it turns it into this little holder that allows you to eat the thing um, perfectly, and then to dispose of the, the little bit of plastic that's left. It's just, w- my example was, my, my thought was, even when you go to 7-Eleven and you buy a $2 onigiri, even that, even that is really well designed and w- with precision and thoughtfulness. Um, one other strange thing that I, I, didn't, I didn't count on is that you're really not supposed to eat while you're walking in Japan. And this does fit into something I noticed about digital technology. I did not see a lot of people walking while they were using their smartphone, which is, you know, the, the phone zombies we, we see on the sidewalk, uh, that I see on the sidewalk all the time in New York City. I did not see very many of them 
in Tokyo. And I think it may have something to do with that social expectation that you're not supposed to walk while you're eating. And uh, it, it may be because, and this is just complete conjecture, um, but I wonder if it's because there is a little more awareness in Japan that multitasking is not that effective. If you're going to walk, you walk somewhere. If you're going to eat, sit down and eat. If you're going to use your phone, stand or sit down somewhere and use your phone, but don't try to do everything all at once. So those are some um, initial impressions of Japan and how technology, uh, not always digital technology, but but how the the technology that I uh, encountered tended to be very well designed and, and seemed to work very well. I was very impressed. I think there I think Japan as a country as a society as an economy it has its own challenges. I'm not suggesting that it's a perfect place and you know it it has it like every place has its own challenges. I just don't think Japan's challenges uh are having the trains run on time or you know and so on. So anyway, those are my impressions on Japan uh, um Colin and Osaka, thank you so much for your question. And good callback to that previous episode where I had mentioned that as a throwaway comment. Okay, or an aside, not a throwaway, but as an aside. Let's go on to question number two. This comes from listener Catherine M., who has a question. Catherine writes, hello, Mark. I have a question for your uh, listener question show. Back in April 2020, now this is is interesting, listeners. She's going back over three years to to one one of my earlier shows. Okay, here she is, Catherine. Back in April 2020, you interviewed Toby Ord, author of a book about the major existential threats to humanity. And I remember you saying that you thought he was exaggerating the danger posed by AI. Has your opinion about that changed in view of recent developments in the AI field? What a great question. Thank you to Catherine M., for asking about Toby Ord's uh, book. And uh, Toby Ord came from, uh, or I think still is, at Oxford. And he wrote a book called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. You can find that interview, by the way, uh, at WFMU.org in the Tectonic Archives, or you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. And it's the, the April 20... 2020 episode. Basically, what what Toby did in The Precipice is he wrote about existential threats, by which he meant threats to all uh, human life. So like like an asteroid, a big enough asteroid would wipe out all human life. And so he there was an asteroid, there was um, runaway climate change, not climate change that, you know, disrupts life and and kills a lot of people, but I mean runaway climate change that would kill all human life. There were a couple more like that, a super volcano. And then the one that he was, that, that he was most worried about was uh, runaway artificial intelligence. You know, this, this artificial general intelligence is going to, or he's saying in this scenario, it would, in order to wipe out human life, it would have to uh, achieve some kind of sentience, it would then have to take over uh, different areas of the economy, like finance, uh, take over the military. It would uh, take over manufacturing, healthcare, 
the, the transportation network, the energy grid, and it would start messing with stuff in order to, uh, I guess, assert its dominance over human, human beings. <laughs> and the uh, eventual effect of, of that AGI running amok is that um, maybe nukes could get launched or the energy grid would go down or, 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 or something, and it could be an existential threat to humanity. Now, Toby Ord is not, he's not the only one who was raising this alarm about artificial general intelligence. There have been a number of headlines, and I've referred to them a few times over the last year or two, talking about AI experts and scholars and, and leading entrepreneurs. Sometimes they sign public letters. Sometimes they uh, are just speaking out about their fear of where AI could take us. We have to be very careful, because they say, because AI could achieve sentience and it could do all of this and, and, and more and, and it could threaten humanity and so on. So that's, that was the context of Toby's warning in his book, The Precipice. And Catherine is asking, you know, here we are three years later and now we have things like ChatGPT. Do you think we're, we're closer to that uh, that dangerous situation that Toby was warning about. And I have a, I have a very easy answer to this. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I don't think we're any closer to that than we were three years ago because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, at least not in the foreseeable future, because when we talk about artificial intelligence, we've covered this a little bit on past shows, there's, there's the, the narrow artificial intelligence that is used for, you know, in a manufacturing, on, on, on the floor of a, a manufacturing facility, the AI that, that uh, controls the robot arm that helps put together the parts for a new car, let's say. Or there is narrow AI in ChatGPT, which, which has uh, sucked in all of Wikipedia and all sorts of public textual uh, documents on the web and is using what some people call spicy autocorrect in order to put one word in front of the other and and string together responses to people's questions. It, but it can, it can do that. It can write an essay on the Great Gatsby, let's say, but it, but it can't uh, take down the power grid. It's just a, comp it's narrow, or how about the narrow AI that we talked about last week with Bruce Schneier um, about these AIs that can play Go or chess, these games, um, they also cannot take down the power grid. So the, the advances, if we want to call it that, that we have seen in artificial intelligence over the last few years, they're all narrow. What Toby Ord uh, and his colleagues at Oxford are warning us about, and all these AI guys who are, who are screaming about existential risk, is artificial general intelligence, AGI, which has, has not shown up. Um, it's been predicted for decades. It's just around the corner, but it simply has not shown up. And AGI is what we would need to see in order for there to be any risk. Now, having said all of that, uh, you know I can't leave it on a, uh, on a calm note like that, that there's nothing to worry about, because there is something to worry about that has to do with AI. It's just not the AI itself. I mean, because if you look around, there are serious negative effects of AI right now. There are people losing their jobs. 
sector, uh, the economy, the, uh, the, the inequality in wealth and income is widening in the economy due to the so-called gig economy. As more and more people are thrown out of full-time employment with benefits, health care, and everything else, and they have to work hourly for these companies like Uber uh, or Airbnb or these, these various food delivery apps, they're all just gig workers. A lot of the power of those platforms comes from their, increasingly comes from their investments, the platform's investments in artificial intelligence. It's narrow. It's, it's not the, uh, the, the, the AGI Skynet Terminator scenario. It's the, these are narrow applications of AI, but they do really have an effect in pushing humans out of a lot of jobs that they used to have and giving the companies more power to dictate the terms over the humans. So they want the humans out of there before they can, frankly, before they can organize a union <laughs> or before they can uh, start asking too many questions or, or, or asking for more power. AI, in other words, is being used by the top leadership of these companies to disenfranchise those workers that would otherwise have a voice and have a little bigger slice of the pie. So when we talk about the dangers of AI, especially in terms of employment and inequality and the economy at large, the dangers are there, but they don't come from Skynet. They don't come from some weird sci-fi version of, of what AI might someday do. They come from very uh, everyday types of economic exploitation uh, that really calls out for better regulation. And we, what we need in order to address AI, the harms from AI, is we need some regulation that, that evens the playing field um, between, uh, between these companies and their gig workers that really should be, in a lot of cases, should be categorized as employees with benefits. I know uh, there's been a big fight over Uber and their drivers, whether the drivers can be classified, need to be classified as employees. Um, and the inequality between the power of these, these huge giant mega corporations, trillion, two trillion dollar corporations, and small and medium businesses that are increasingly having trouble competing because these companies, these, these big tech companies have such big, uh, what they call kill zones to make sure no one innovates anything within 100 miles of these companies' businesses. AI is serving as a tool to shore up the concentration of power in these four or five big tech companies that then bring the exploitation on to the rest of us. So yes, uh, yes to Catherine M. There is a danger. There, there are great risks with AI. It's just not the AI itself. It's the eight dudes on the West Coast who run trillion dollar companies that are causing the exploitation that is the risk. And they are using the AI on the rest of us. That's the risk. Let's uh, move on to question three, shall we? This comes from listener Joe. Uh, Joe asks, the war in Ukraine and wider geopolitical tensions have prompted much interest in the use of technology, that is to say, AI, drones, satellite internet, and so on, on the battlefield. So Joe's asking about these new digital technologies as, 
as they're used on the battlefield uh, on Ukra in, in Ukraine and, and elsewhere. Joe continues, in the past, wars have often accelerated technological breakthroughs, leading to positive impacts, positive impacts on society. Mark, what do you think might be the positive consequences for technology that we'll see coming out of the current conflict, if any? Um, once again, very thoughtful and good question, Joe, and thank you. Thank you and the other listeners for sending these in. Um, first, as I often say on this show, I'm a generalist, so I'm not a um, <laughs> military tactics specialist, nor am I an expert in exactly what's happening in Ukraine, although I, of course, am following the news. But when you ask about positive outcomes from technological development on the battlefield, um, it's frankly, it's, it's hard for me to immediately come up with any positive scenarios. First of all, because uh, just, to, just to say it, you know, war, war is, does not have positive consequences. I mean, it is the worst thing that humans do is war. And I am not, I, I cannot bring myself to praise anything about this war or another war uh, it's just a terrible, it's a terrible, th sometimes it's unavoidable, I understand, but, but it is, um, it, it's hard to, it's hard to say I'm foreseeing this positive consequence. Um, although I will say in this case, the Ukraine war, if we want to talk about geopolitical outcomes, uh, I think that the possible outcome of Ukraine regaining some self-determination and, re, re, and uh, reclaiming its, its land and the autonomy of its people and its culture, that would be very positive, very positive. But that's not one of the technological outcomes that you're asking about. So in, in terms of technology, it's hard for me to say, if I'm looking at this list, AI, how, how is the use of AI in the battlefield um, going to turn into a positive here at home or drones or satellite? It's, I can't think of any. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, I can say a couple of things. Um, one is a better, not a better, a, an actual historian would be able to walk us through um, technologies that in the past that were developed on the battlefield and turned out to have great effect, uh, very positive effect. I'm sure there are um, healthcare that, or, or first aid innovations that have come up in recent wars on the battlefield that have then been deployed by EMTs in peacetime here in the States or, or elsewhere. I'm sure there are some, I'm sure there's a list of very positive outcomes from technological development on the battlefield. I'm not saying it, it, it can't exist. Um, one that comes to mind, this is sort of funny, is the you know how stamps postage stamps in the U.S. you don't have to lick them anymore. They're uh, they're adhesive backed, right? So if I if I remember right, that came from one of the Iraq wars. I'm not sure which one, but it was so difficult for the stamps. I think the the they were having the soldiers uh, on the ground out there were having trouble. Uh, with the stamps that had to be had to be moistened before putting it on an envelope, that the postal service came up with those adhesive stamps 
that were much easier to apply to envelopes on the battlefield. And now it's, it's what we all use. Uh, so that's kind of positive. But in terms of the Ukraine conflict and AI and drones uh, and satellite, I can't, I can't think of a lot unless, unless, unless you're really into satellite internet. And I will say that there was an article from July 28 in the New York Times talking about Starlink, which is the satellite internet company owned by Elon Musk that has been part of this Ukraine conflict. And I want to read you a little bit of this New York Times story because um, this will this will kick off a, a little bit more commentary from me about satellite internet because um, Elon Musk has 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 used Starlink quite a bit on the Ukraine in the Ukraine conflict. Here's what the time story says. Since 2019, Mr. Musk has sent SpaceX rockets into space nearly every week, delivering dozens of satellites, SOFA-sized satellites into orbit. These satellites communicate with terminals on Earth so they can beam high-speed internet to nearly every corner of the planet. So this, this is me now, the Starlink service, if you're in the middle of nowhere, or in the middle of a battlefield that has no internet access, no cell access, everything's been been blown out, you can connect, uh, if you have the right device that can connect with a satellite, you can have Wi-Fi where you are thanks to a satellite that is above, that uh, Musk launched before. And as the Times said, he's been launching these for weeks. Today, the Times continues, more than 4,500 Starlink satellites are in the skies, accounting for more than 50% of all active satellites. So we have 8,000 and change satellites up there right now, which is a lot if you think about it. But these satellites have already started changing the complexion of the night sky. Um, I know astronomers are now seeing that their, their time-lapse photos have streaks in them as Starlink uh, satellites zoom by in the middle of the night sky. And that, the New York Times says, is even before accounting for Musk's plans to have as many as 42,000 satellites in orbit in the coming years. Okay, so here you have Musk already has 4,500 satellites up there. Some other companies have a few more thousand. And it's already been used on the Ukrainian battlefield. He's looking for 42,000 to put up in, in space. So the use of these satellites in the Ukraine conflict, I'm sure, is acting as an accelerant to his plans to put up tens of thousands of satellites in the night sky. So this is what I said before. If you're really into satellite internet access in the middle of nowhere. Some people live way out in the middle of nowhere and that's maybe their their only uh, option to get internet. Then maybe you're really for this kind of acceleration from the battlefield. For me, however, uh, I, w- I just wish there was some other way that we could deal with people's need for internet access except that th- th- did not involve putting up 42,000 satellites obscuring our view of the night sky they're just it seems wrong that we would fill our night sky with space junk because at some point these satellites fail and yes i know the the design of these things is that eventually 
they they re-enter uh, orbit and go into and burn out into the atmosphere, uh, and I'm sure putting all sorts of interesting uh, chemicals and, and metallic traces into the upper atmosphere uh, multiplied by 42,000 eventually should be an interesting impact. But um, I, I just, I, I wish there was some other way to go about this other than seriously obscuring our connection, our human connection to the heavens uh, that did not involve one of the world's richest men throwing up, and I mean throwing up, his stuff into the night skies just for internet access for people who needed it. So I'm, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical about it, although I acknowledge that some people are, are really for it. Uh, there's another aspect of this story, by the way, this, this Starlink story. It's not simply a risk that we're going to lose access to the night skies, which is already happening. In addition, it's that Musk is achieving more and more geopolitical power. This is what the New York Times says. Uh, a combustible personality, the 52-year-old's allegiances are fuzzy. Uh, while Mr. Musk is hailed as a genius innovator, he alone can decide to shut down Starlink Internet access for a customer or a country. And he has the ability to leverage sensitive information that the service gathers. Such concerns have been heightened because no company and no government have come close to matching what Musk has built. And, of course, Musk has his tweet at the ready. I, I guess he doesn't want to call them tweets anymore, the X post or whatever. Uh, but Musk posted on his Twitter X thing recently, quote, between Tesla, Starlink, and Twitter, I may have more real-time global economic data in one head than anyone ever, unquote. What a guy. What a guy. He's going to put up 42,000 satellites in the night sky. Um, he, has, he has been granting or withholding access to those satellites on the Ukrainian battlefield as, his, as the whims strike him. And he's bragging to the world that he has more access to sensitive economic data than anyone ever due to this company and his other surveillance-related companies. That's a whole other area of this, by the way, is that Starlink, of course, is also, in addition to providing people with internet access, some of whom really need it, it's also granting Musk special surveillance powers on who's using what and who is communicating with whom and who's saying what and uploading and downloading what. It's an incredible amount of power concentrated into the hands of one uh, very, let's say, mercurial person. So Ukraine, the battlefield is accelerating, I would think, Musk's, uh, Musk's progress, if we can call it that, with Starlink. I, I know there are some positives baked in there for some people, but the net, I think, is, I think is we're, we're going to regret it someday. And similarly for AI and drones, you know, there was a headline recently that uh, a drone struck uh, or a couple of drones struck some buildings in Moscow. And I guess there was some supposition that there were Ukrainian forces that were behind that. They were, they were striking uh, the Russian capital. And I, it's hard for me to 
it's hard for me to cheer when I see drones being weaponized in that way uh, because it could so easily be the drones weaponized against targets much closer to home here. So when, when we see the quote-unquote advances of, of AI and drones and satellite technology for military purposes, um, you, I, I've, I don't know what you want to do, but from speaking for myself, I always have to think maybe it was an advance in that conflict there, but what happens when it's turned against us? Then how are we going to feel about it? So uh, I, again, I want to thank, um, I want to thank Joe for the question and say, once again, I feel rather skeptical. Um, I noticed on the comment board, uh, Cresty, listener Cresty says, maybe Musk will launch himself into space. You know, that's a great idea, Cresty. Um, could we just suggest that Musk send up 42,001 shipments up into space and he can be the last one he can be an orbiting you know king satellite just put it in and they're 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 the size of a sofa right can we just give him the nicest sofa that anyone's ever seen and put it in an in an airlock and just put it in a very beautiful nice orbit around the earth Forty-two thousand and one shipments um that's a great idea okay let's move on to one more this is from your friend and mine, Wendy Del Formaggio, who's the host of Wreck Your Own Adventure, which is on the drummer stream from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. And it's really nice of Wendy to join us most weeks right after her show ends on the comment board. Uh, Wendy Del Formaggio asks, um, Mark, what I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately is, are we starting to see the tide turn regarding technology, surveillance, and how much rests on it. She says, you know, uh, she brings up with, with Musk's purchase of Twitter that seems to be not going very well, the, the backlash I've been covering, the, Google getting kicked out of Toronto. Uh, Station manager Ken talked about um, AI failures and model collapse. It just seems like people are st- must, must start to get the message that this technology has real drawbacks and she says, Wendy says, could this lead to some legislation and a more widespread abandonment of social media? Are there signs of hope? And Wendy, great question. And I would love, <laughs> I would love to say, yes, there are signs of hope. And I'm sure there's, there's some hopeful news out there. I mean, occasionally I, I give I give a positive headline, and, and Ken did too in his, his uh, News of Technology Hope show a couple of weeks ago. But again, just, I'm just reaching for overall answers in this episode, and I, it's not like everything is hopeless. It's doom and gloom. I don't want to say that, but for the question that you asked, does it look like there's more legislation coming? Are people ready to abandon social media? I mean, if I look, if I just, to those questions, if I look around, Wendy, I don't see any legislation. I don't, I don't see it. We had, a, we had a chance last fall to do something about Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple and their predations on the economy. And the legislation went nowhere. I mean, you saw Senator Schumer just ran out the clock, decided not to bring them up for a vote, and they would have passed. So, no, I don't see any legislation. There's here and there, there's an attempt at maybe a privacy law. 
Um, there are some initial bills that people are starting to talk about, but I don't see any real legislation yet. So, no. As for abandonment of social media, I mean, look around. Do you see the kids abandoning TikTok? <laughs> Do you see the, the uh, old people abandoning Facebook? Uh, I mean, I guess you could say a few people have, have dumped their Twitter accounts now that, that Musk is in charge of Twitter and doing all sorts of crazy things there. It's now called X, I guess. Uh, but I wouldn't say that, that a lot of people are abandoning social media or giving up on, on big tech. It's just a few people have given up on Musk. But, but generally, I wouldn't say there is any slowdown or resistance, really, to what big tech has been doing. I don't see it. In fact, I see a few things in the other direction. And if you go to the playlist at WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, I've put up a few stories that, uh, that feed into this. And one, actually, that Wendy and I were discussing via email just today is this New York Times story from August 5th called A New Frontier for Travel Scammers, AI-Generated Guidebooks. And so this is one, the link is there if you want to take a look at the story. Apparently what's happening is um, there are scammers who are using AI, like ChatGPT-type tools, to spit out whole books of travel guides. So it'll say... Well, let me just read you a piece, uh, an excerpt of this, this Times piece. Quote, a recent Amazon search for the phrase Paris Travel Guide 2023 yielded dozens of guides with that exact title. One of them, whose author is listed as Stuart Hartley, boasts ungrammatically that it is, quote, everything you need to know before plan a trip to Paris. The book itself has no further information about the author or the publisher. It has no photographs, no maps. Uh, although many of its competitors do have art and photography that are traceable to stock photo sites. <laughs> More than 10 additional guidebooks attributed to Stuart Hartley have appeared on Amazon in recent, mo in recent months, relying on the same cookie-cutter design and using similar promotional language. So what it looks like, friends, is that there's scammers who are just uploading, I don't know, hundreds? Is it thousands of fake AI-written guidebooks that if someone buys them off of Amazon and actually try, you know, takes them on a trip and tries to use them to plan a trip or find their way somewhere, they could get seriously lost. I mean, it could actually be dangerous if people are using these guidebooks because they're, they're fake. There's they're just... AI nonsense. Now, you could say, well, that's terrible. And of course, Amazon wanting to treat customers well and wanting to treat its, its legitimate authors well is certainly swinging into action to do something about this. As of the story, uh, the, the, the reporters uh, Seth Kugel and Stephen Hiltner said that Amazon was basically doing nothing. Which, to me, is just typical for Amazon. I mean, why would Amazon do anything? They have the platform that where buyers and sellers meet to buy, in this case, buy books. And so if it doesn't, it doesn't matter what is being sold as long as Amazon gets their cut, which they're, they're, they seem to be raising year after year, the percentage that Amazon takes on every transaction. They don't need to write the book. 
they don't even sometimes need to store it. They'll get someone else to fulfill the book. So all Amazon has to do is, is keep maintaining this website where scammers list their scammy, fakey, fake books and, and would-be tourists come and pay money for that, giving Amazon a cut. Man, it's a beautiful business. Why should Amazon lift a finger to do anything about this, this raft of dangerous scam AI material on a site? Because you know what? That costs money to look into that. That, that, that actually takes a human being some time to go filter out what's happening. And, you know, growth at any cost, friends. And if the growth is, is in the, the market of scammy, fakey, fake AI books, well, so be it, as long as Amazon is getting its cut. So th that is an example of a development where AI is being used and it's spreading and now it's spreading into these big tech platforms and it's not being used at all for anyone's long-term benefit. It's being used for the platform's own short-term growth and their continued unethical use of these, these giant cuts of money. Let's move on to Zoom. I found this on Mastodon. A user named Elizabeth Ayer pointed out something that was recently added to Zoom. And this is AI related. Recently added to Zoom's terms and conditions. Friends, do you ever use a Zoom video call? I knew, I'll, I'll admit I do. do you, have you read the terms and conditions recently? I'll admit that I have not until now. Here is the recently added sentence in the Zoom terms and conditions. You consent to Zoom's access, use, collection, creation, modification, distribution, processing, sharing, maintenance, and storage of service-generated data for any purpose to the extent and in the manner permitted under applicable law, including the purpose of product and service development, marketing, analytics, quality assurance, machine learning or artificial intelligence, including the purposes of training and tuning of algorithms and models. Do you, did you hear, do you, do you see what's happening here, friends? The content of Zoom calls can now be used as input to Zoom's own AI training algorithm. The content of your Zoom call can be used to train Zoom's AI algorithm. What is the content of your Zoom call? Don't tell me you said anything that you don't want ingested by this giant Silicon Valley company. Did you say something private? I know some people have therapy sessions on Zoom. Can you imagine what people say there? Well, it goes into the AI. Did you have a private business call? Did you have a private call with your family? Goes into the AI. This is the world that we're, we're, we're entering into, friends. These companies need more data to feed into their AI engines. And they get that data from surveillance. They're going to be increasing and increasing and increasing the surveillance because they are in a, a fight to the death with the other big tech giants to see who can get the most surveillance data and feed it into their AI engine the fastest. Who can do it first? They don't care about your privacy. They don't care about your relationships. They don't care about your mental health. What they care about is growth at any cost. 
So if you don't like it, don't use the services. That's what they'll say. That's the big tech way, friends. Thank you, Silicon Valley. And then finally, facial recognition, a couple of quick pieces. Uh, New York Times, August 6th, this just yesterday. Um, and I want to thank uh, Webhamster Henry from the comment board for, for making me aware of this one. Headline, eight months pregnant and arrested after false facial recognition match. So this, this woman, Ms. Woodruff in Detroit, was falsely accused of carjacking because of a faulty facial recognition algorithm. This again happened in Detroit where there have been several cases like this. Um, the, the Times story says uh, Woodruff is the sixth person to report being falsely accused of a crime as a result of facial rec tech used by police to match an unknown offender's face to a photo in a database. All six people have been black. Ms. Woodruff is the first woman to report it happening to her. So we've covered this on past shows. The accuracy of facial recognition, facial, facial recognition algorithms on black faces, black and brown, I suppose, is uh, lower than, it, than the accuracy on white faces. And so there is... The, the statistical probability that, you know, more, more, pe more black people will be misidentified. And then, as you see here, the police show up, they arrested her in front of her family, everybody's crying, they, they, uh, they put her in a jail cell. It just sounded, and she's eight months pregnant. She's trying to explain to the cops, do you really think I'm out carjacking when I'm eight months pregnant? I mean... <laughs> She, that's what the story says. She was trying to reason with them. No, they threw her in jail. And then finally they found out, oh, oops, the facial recognition algorithm was wrong. Oh, okay, well, then they let her out. Here you go. Um, the answer to this is not to make facial recognition surveillance more accurate. The answer, friends, as we've said on past shows, Chris Gilliard and others have said this, the answer to this is to dismantle facial recognition entirely as a technology. We should dismantle, we should ban facial recognition. We do not want more accurate surveillance. We want less surveillance. That's a way to address the injustice here. Just take down the algorithm completely. So people like Ms. Woodruff uh, will not have to suffer this, this, this awful experience in the future. Just dismantle it. But again, do I think that that's going to happen? What's the trajectory we're on? more facial recognition. Case in point is the final story that I have time for by uh, Shira Avid in the Washington Post, July 11. The headline, you can say no to a TSA face scan, but even a senator had trouble. And it goes on to say, talk about facial recognition in American airports is on the rise. And the TSA is just installing this stuff everywhere. Uh, the, the story says the TSA declined to publicly disclose its analysis or how the accuracy compares with those of human TSA agents, but even small error rates could affect many people. For 2.3 million people a day, the TSA screens, even a 3% error rate translate into more than 68,000 people a day misidentified. 
And the TSA says, oh, of course you can just opt out, but if, if there's never a sign. Let me tell you, friends, when I went to Canada a few weeks ago, I got facial recognition scanned by the TSA on the way out and once again on the way in. And as far as I know, those were American scanners both times. We're not Canadian. This stuff is proliferating everywhere. And I, I, I don't know what we're going to do. We need legislation. You can't ask people to, you know, hold up their whole family or their friends group they're traveling with and opt out and take an extra 20 minutes and get stared at by everybody in line. You can't ask for people to step up and do that. We need legislation. So if you want to do something about this, I don't know, elect better lawmakers, write your lawmakers, call them and say, please dismantle facial recognition. Please regulate big tech. Please do something about the widening gulf of inequality in our economy because of the concentration of power and wealth in four or five companies that want nothing more than to exploit the weakest and most vulnerable people in this country. Say that to your lawmakers and maybe things, maybe things will start to get better. Thanks again to all the listeners who sent in questions. I will read your questions on the comment board later. Uh, I didn't get a chance to get to them this evening. Um, Dave Mandel is going to come in with his show, It's Complicated, here in a minute. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Uh, I want to say thanks to uh, I want to say thanks to listener Dave. Listener Dave sent in this great suggestion for an outro song by the band The Evens, which is Ian McKay and Amy Farina. It's a song called All You Find You Keep. And it's from a few years ago, but it's really about surveillance if you listen to the lyrics. And um, I'm going to play that for you right after your homework. Your homework, friends, you know what it is? You know? Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, whatever you do, friends, get off Google. Have a great week.
And good evening, friends. It's just a few seconds past 7 p.m., and it's time for It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I follow hot on the heels of Mark Hurst here every week. I'm here between the hours of 7 and 8. Thanks for joining me. I have, to start tonight's show, um, a couple things I've been meaning to play from band camp one of them is from a group called i'm gonna play two two not very long tracks so i'll play them in a row uh one of them is from a group called ultra zook they are french and we're gonna hear a track from a recently released album i think it just came out a couple couple months ago uh and it's on the les tourneurs label french label that is uh very active, I guess, on Bandcamp, and best of all, I think everything, th- this album I'm going to play, and I think everything that the label uh, has up on Bandcamp is is name your price, so if you, <laughs> for those of you who are strapped or just stingy, you can get, you can pick this album up for a song. So we're going to hear something from the group Ultra Zook, uh, again, they're French, and following them, I'm going to play something really wild from a Swiss group called God knows how this how this band name is pronounced it's got a lot of uh, punctuation marks and things in it uh, let's we'll call them scoof it's s c apostrophe o with an umlaut o with an umlaut f and they are from Luzerne Switzerland and we're going to hear something recent from them from uh, I think 2020 so I'm going to play those two pieces to start the show tonight and then We'll see. Hang on. No, one second. We bum, we may bum, we bum, we no, no, may we bum, may no bum, may we. 
oui, non, non, mais oui, ben, mais non, ben, mais oui, mais ben non, mais oui. Oh, 